And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We are proud to announce that the Planet Trillion Trees podcast has received a silver medal award for a podcast series through Garden Communicators International. We thank Garden Communicators for the recognition. This podcast is being recorded on November 4th, 2022. Nan Sturman is a California native, garden expert, garden designer, author, botanist, and an award-winning communicator. Nan has long been dedicated to the transformation of planted landscapes from overly thirsty and resource-intensive to climate-appropriate and sustainable. In addition to designing gardens, Nan works to connect plants to people and the planet. Some examples of that work include her award-winning public TV show, A Growing Passion, which Nan hosts, produces, and writes. 48 episodes air on KPBS-TV in San Diego, on Create TV, and are available on a agrowingpassion.com. Nan's most recent book, Hot Color, Dry Garden, is a guide for creating color-filled, water-wise gardens. Nan leads tours to garden adventures around the world, including Europe, South Africa, Costa Rica, and the U.S., Nan's gardening approach dates back to the 1970s when she was involved in the first wave of the sustainability movement. She trained at the Integral Urban House in Berkeley, California, earned a botany degree from Duke University, a master's in biology from UC Santa Barbara, and a master's in instructional design from San Diego State University. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Nan. We're delighted that you could be with us today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be part of the podcast. Well, I want to say that after reading your background, you have so much information and your PBS show, Growing Passion. We want to hear about that. We want to hear about that first. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Um, And how all this fits in with your trees too. If I was going to jump in, Nan, I always love to find out how people got into horticulture. How did that happen for you? One of my earliest memories is in the garden with my grandfather, you know, growing tomatoes and just watching the look of pleasure on his face, you know, that he got from biting into this incredible, you know, ripe tomato that he grew in our backyard. Because my grandparents lived in an apartment, so he would garden in our backyard. And I'm talking like I'm age three. The plants are towering overhead. And it's just an indelible image in my mind. And I, I think that kind of thing really influences you as a, a very, very young, young child. And I always gardened a little bit with my parent, with my mother, not with my dad. He had nothing to do with any of that. But with my mom and 
when I went away to college, I, I was sent away to college to become a biomedical engineer. Not that I knew what that was. We're talking a long time ago and it was a new profession and somebody decided I'd be really good at it, which was not true. And after trying a number of things, I ended up in botany. And that just spoke to me. I just loved studying botany. I went to Duke University, which for a Los Angeles girl in the 1970s was kind of a shocker. I didn't even know where Duke was. But this was in the era when botany was still whole plants. You still studied whole plants. I mean, we studied plant physiology and cell biology and all that. But I would spend afternoons walking through the Duke Forest with my cohort and and TAs, and we'd be learning how to identify trees and shrubs that were bare, that had dropped their leaves, but learning how to identify them based on the scar left behind when the leaves fell off or the bud scars. You have to look so carefully at the patterns when you do that. And what that does is it's not so important. You know, I live in California and I'm from California, so those plants don't exist here. But what that does is it gives you a skill of being able to look and observe. That skill has been so important throughout my life. You know, like when I'm traveling with people who have nothing to do with plants and they look at a a wild area, to them, they just see green stuff. They think it's all weeds. But to me, I can pick out all the different plants and tell you exactly what they are because I know what they look like. And that's a skill. I know that you have developed that as well. But that's a skill that we sort of acquire and then it applies to everything else in your life, not just plants. It applies to dealing with people and it applies to being a critical thinker. And it really broadens your perspective and how you function in the world. I got, I did the botany degree and then I went to graduate school to become a PhD biologist. And that didn't work out very well for me. You know, that, that whole experience of being in the forest for me was a first because we have forests here in California, but nothing like those, you know, broadleaf forests in North Carolina and the the pines and all that. I mean, that was that was amazing. It was a little scary too because it was a foreign kind of environment, but it was amazing. And I love that. I absolutely love that. The whole experience was just totally different from anything that I knew. So I went from there, I went to graduate school and graduate school made me realize I was not meant to be a PhD biologist. So I did some things like I did a a fellowship at Cable News Network when we called it, you know, CNN, when we called it Cable News Network through um, the American Academy for the Advancement of Sciences back a long time ago, trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And I worked in the science reporting net for about four or five months, which was totally amazing. And I got to do all kinds of great things. Like I produced a segment on sea turtles, you know, how they in South Carolina on some island, remote island, how they come in and they lay their eggs and then the eggs hatch and the hatchlings go out to to go out to sea. I mean, it was an amazing, totally amazing experience. Not the whole experience was like that, but in the end, that's what ended up happening. So it kind of opened my eyes to a whole new possibility. And that was communicating science, biology, plants, birds, whatever, to the world. And I realized when I looked back at my my graduate experience, I was much more interested in spreading the gospel of science and biology to the undergraduates, because that's what you do as a graduate student. You work as a TA and you teach in, you know, you help teach classes. That was much more interesting to me than actually doing the research itself. So looking back now, I realized that kind of set me on this communication trajectory. So I, I did that. I came back. We moved cities. We were in Santa Barbara. We moved to San Diego. 
which was supposed to be short term for my husband to do a postdoc after he finished his PhD. But here we are 30 plus years later and tried to work as a science journalist, which is not an easy thing to do. And especially then as a freelance. And I ended up after a variety of things, going back to graduate school. And I went to graduate school in a topic, an area that is called instructional design. And it turned out that instructional design was what I had always been doing. Mm -hmm. I was, so as an instructional designer, what you do is you create information and training programs, or mostly that's it's information programs, training programs, curricula, things like that. Work with a content expert who knows the content figure out who the audience is. What do they know? What do they need to know? What's the best way to get that content to that audience or communicate that content to that audience? And then you create a product. And then I I earned a second graduate degree in instructional design. And I spent a decade as an independent consultant. And this was in the dot-com, the first dot-com boom. So I was doing things like everything from creating curricula for high school students on salt marshes to a real, I worked with Century 21 Real Estate, which is a big real estate group uh, in California. I don't know if they're elsewhere. Yep. Um, creating training, pro, sales training for their new associates to, I worked with the Department of Water and Power in LA. They had some training program they were re- doing for, I don't remember, new meter reading or something. Anything, you know, basically it was a skill set of how to analyze content, identify your audience, figure out the medium, create a product, institute the product, evaluate it, and then go back and do it again because it's an iterative process. It dovetailed with my science training perfectly. And because most of my colleagues didn't have any kind of technical orientation, they were almost all you know second career, but they came from classrooms and whatever else. Any project that was the least bit technical or scientific came to me. So I got to design, I was in the design team for the Birch Aquarium at Scripps Oceanography. Uh, I worked for the Getty Conservation Institute, which is the art conservation people, creating training for art conservators that had for the clean use, to clean uh, paintings and such, but it was all chemistry. So I got to do all kinds of great things. And somewhere in the process of doing that, I wanted to create landscape design software because it fit in with all of the You know, I was creating the first generation of computer education software. I worked a lot on that kind of stuff. And in the process of kind of researching how to create this landscape design software, I started writing about gardens and plants, which were things that I knew because I was a plant nerd, had always been a plant nerd, you know, dirty fingernail gardener. And I was now applying all this skill set that I had acquired from these different careers in communicating about gardens. And I started writing articles and I started doing this and doing that. And then I got hired to be the garden editor for the local home and garden magazine, San Diego Home Garden Lifestyle Magazine. That completely changed what I was doing as a profession. It was the same skill set. Who's my audience? What's the content? What do they know? What do I want them to know? What's the best way to communicate that to them? But now I was really focused on an area that I was passionate about. And that also allowed me to reach out to like the local bamboo experts and the palm experts and whatever the content was, if I didn't know it, I'm going to research the heck out of it because there's no way I'm putting out bad information. It has to be accurate information. It has to be scientifically based. It has to be tested. It has to be proven. I come at this all from a very science-based 
background. And in many ways, that is what distinguishes me from other people who do similar kind of work. I'm not saying, oh, I did this and I did that and it worked. Here, do it. I'm saying the research tells us this should work and this should work. Let's test it. Here's some ideas of how it should apply to your situation. Here's the information you need to know so that no matter how it works in your situation, you can analyze it. So if you plant a plant that is supposed to work in your garden and it dies, what are the possible reasons for it to have died? Maybe it didn't fit your your soil. Maybe your garden is too cold or too hot for it. Maybe the way you planted it was inappropriate. Maybe it came from the nursery with a flaw. But it's not magic. There are reasons why these things happen. So I want to empower my audience to understand what they're doing at a level that helps them troubleshoot. And instead of saying, oh, I just don't have a green thumb, they say, oh, I think this was the problem. Let me change the irrigation. I'll try that plant again. I love that, Nan, and particularly how we do need science to justify what we do in horticulture. You know, when I sit down and do a Google search, the internet is not always going to be my friend with the information that pops up. You know, for me, I find myself, uh, a lot of times it's in with the backyard vegetables, you know, small garden, trying to maximize it, seasonal planting or letting your plants go to seed and stuff. And uh, people are all over the place with things, and it is frustrating. Just that in tree care, it's it's the same kind of thing where there's a lot of half-truths there and misconceptions, and it takes people down the wrong path. Maybe we can pivot a little bit, Nan, over towards the San Diego area. You know, Eva and I have had some guests on recently from California. I get to visit it a couple times a year because I have children up in uh, Sonoma, I get the feeling or what I learned from California is that it's a state with a special set of issues environmentally and that arguably things playing out in terms of climate catastrophe, climate change are are very real right now. What does that mean for horticulture and what does that mean for metropolitan San Diego? First, let me start with this, how California is 700 miles long. How many states do you guys have in 700 miles? Three or four. Okay. So, you know, if you were to travel 700 miles on the East Coast, you would go through multiple states. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we have California 700 miles long and at the widest, I think it's 300 miles wide. We have almost every USDA zone here, even though USDA zones are useless here. They're totally useless. But if you look on a map, you'll see every zone. It's a crazy quilt because of our topography and because our climate is so different. So the soils, I think in San Diego County alone, we have something like 19 or 34 kinds of soils. I can't remember exactly, but it's like some huge number of soils. Everything from sand to hard clay. We have mountains, valleys, deserts. If I leave my house, if I go one direction, in 12 minutes, I'm at the beach. In the other direction, in two hours, I'm at the desert. And in the process, I've gone through valley and mountain to get to the desert. It's just hugely diverse. So we have everything here. So here's something interesting. San Diego County has the most biodiversity of any county in the contiguous United States. We also have the greatest number of threat of endangered species for that reason. You know, everybody wants to move to California. Why do they want to move to California? Because the weather is so beautiful. But why is that? We have a Mediterranean climate. And a Mediterranean climate is entirely different from anywhere else in the U.S. There's only five places in the world where there's a Mediterranean climate. California, the west coast of Chile, 
the area around the Mediterranean, right, in Europe, North Africa, you know, Middle East, right? The, the southern tip of South Africa and the southern and southwest coast of Australia. If you look at a map, except for the Mediterranean, all of those are the west coasts of continents. And this is, they're all between 30 and 40 degrees north and south of the equator. It is a region that is a special kind of subtropical region. It's the subtropics. What distinguishes these regions is the climate pattern. We don't get any rainfall or almost no rainfall, depending where you are, very little, from the end of spring until fall. Summers are long and hot and dry. That's why everybody wants to come here. Summers are long and beautifully sunny and hot and dry. So I can go to the beach any day. I can plan an outdoor event without worrying about it raining on me. You know, I don't even think about that because I know it's not going to rain in summer. So for people, it's great. But if you're a plant, what that means is that when it's hottest and driest, there is no precipitation. So for plants to, to survive in this kind of climate, there's all kinds of specific adaptations. And they're all oriented towards water conservation. See, this is where the science comes in. Understanding why our environment is the way it is, and then how to garden with the climate, with the environment, rather than fighting it. Rather than bringing, trying to grow hydrangeas or azaleas. You can grow them here, but it takes so much work. And they look pitiful. Right. So don't bother with those plants. Grow the plants that are native to not just California, but those other regions of the world with a similar climate pattern. Because all of those plants have evolved adaptations to survive when it's hot and dry with no precipitation. So give us some examples of trees that are very drought tolerant that can survive in your area. Because we did have someone from Qatar on who was telling us about the date palm that has that same kind of ability to go without water for months and months and still produce the amazing dates that it does. So give us some examples. Okay, it's so interesting that you date palm because date palms will grow in, we're talking about coastal, basically coastal California. So uh, up until you get to the, the um, Pacific coast, the mountains, right? Once you get to the mountains, things change a little bit. And once you get to the desert, it's totally different. Right. So date palms will grow in Mediterranean California, but they don't produce dates. They only produce dates once you get to the desert and they have to be flood irrigated. So even though they will survive and they will produce in California, they need to be irrigated because those date palms are from areas where even though it's desert, there's a high water table. So we can grow them, but they won't produce here. There are other palms that will produce in Southern California along you know, in the Mediterranean region, but not date palms. Well, that's interesting because I remember him saying that they have a very high humidity at nighttime. So they take in a lot of water at nighttime. So, yeah, yeah so that's interesting too. And you think that maybe there's going to be some moisture coming off the ocean, but you don't even get that. No, we get moisture off the ocean, but it's not enough for those palms to produce. Right, right. But if you're, if you're in my region, you know, the way the air feels here, compared to someplace like Tucson, which actually has a little bit higher rainfall than we do, the air feels entirely different. In Tucson, it's dry. You know, your mucous membranes all dry up, your skin feels dry, your lips dry. Here, it's not like that. There's more humidity in the air, but there's not nearly the humidity that there is where you guys are on the East Coast. 
we don't have that like wet rash, wash rag feeling in summer. That's the other reason people love it here. We get a couple of days out of the summer where it's humid. We get tropical rainstorms coming up for Mexico, but it's actually, this is happening in climate change. We're getting more of that. It's getting hotter and it's getting more humid mm. in the summer. But as a, as a rule, in general, it's not very humid at all. Okay, so if you're talking about native trees, there are very few. There's a lot of oaks, live oak, there's scrub oak, there's Engelman oak, there are a number of oaks. But in general, those are, it's not dense forest. There's no dense forest. In fact, the, the dominant habitat is called chaparral. Chaparral is also called the elfin forest, E-L-F-I-N, like miniature forest. Why? Because with these severe climate conditions, plants have evolved to be very small. They've got to make sure they conserve water. So leaves are tiny. They're often leathery. They're oily. The oil has replaced waters as a way of, of reducing the amount of moisture lost to the, to the atmosphere. They're shaped like needles, which is the smallest, smallest surface area. They're waxy. They're succulent. They're covered in hair, which even though that feels really good to us for a plant, when you have all those little tiny hairs, those hairs serve as um, like shade cloth over the surface of a leaf. They also become a vapor barrier. So they slow the loss of water off the surface of the leaf. So if you look at our native habitat, you don't see trees. What you see is this kind of mosaic of mounds of what look like shrubs in shades of soft green and deep green and olive green, not usually bright green. So when it comes to trees, like the broadleaf trees, again, there's very few. There's California sycamore, there's cottonwoods, but they tend to happen only in riparian corridors. And in fact, many of the oaks occur in the upper edges of those riparian corridors. So this is not a tree habitat. This is not a tree region until you get up into the mountains where you know you have more oaks and pines and things like that. But where the majority of people are, that is not tree, native tree habitat, except for in those riparian corridors. So most of the trees that are in our landscapes are not native. Very few of them are native. More and more, people are planting more and more native, which is wonderful. And as climate change is happening, our plant palette, this is one of the things that my colleagues and I, my horticulture colleagues and I are working on now, is trying to anticipate or interpret the anticipation of climate change and what plants we should be planting now or encouraging people to plant now, thinking 20 years, 50 years ahead. It's a major transition happening right now. And I haven't sorted it all out yet. I'm only in the beginning of that learning curve. But when you drive up and down our streets, the trees that you see, maybe 1% are native trees. Some of the trees that you're talking about, I think of Australia a lot for California. And I also think of South Africa uh, for uh, Southern California, uh, just because of yeah. my plant knowledge of uh, being in the flower shop business, where when things would come in, I'd say, I want the plants coming from Africa because they're going to be easier to dry because they have less water content. Or if they come in from Australia, they're going to be easier to dry because they have less water content. You know, don't give me an anthurium from, from Hawaii that is from Hawaii because it's not going to dry as well as 
if I had something that's from a drier climate. So those are the kind of things that I would think about when I had my flower shop. Yeah, so tell us what what you see. Yeah, it's so interesting that you said that because like, you know, this is why I love talking to people who are experts in other arenas, because what you just said about wanting to use those flowers because they don't have high water content now goes into my arsenal about talking about those plants, which I talk about all the time. Because you're absolutely right. The trees that do best here, the plants that do best here, aside from natives, are those from all those Mediterranean climate regions, the west coast of Chile, South Africa, Australia, and the Mediterranean region. So I'm looking out my front window. I have a Palo Verde. Okay, that's from the desert. I have several different kinds of brachycotton. Those are all from Australia. I have an Arbutus marina. That is from the Mediterranean. I'm looking at my neighbor. There's an Italian cypress, which mostly get used inappropriately because people plant them as hedges. They are not hedges. No. Let me just see. There's uh, several kinds of Malaleuca. Those are Australian. There's bottle brush, Callistabin. That's an Australian. I see a tree aloe. Okay, that's probably from Madagascar or maybe South Africa. Probably from South Africa. Yeah. So that's largely where our plant palette, when it comes to trees, comes from. It's exactly right. So that plant palette, we're all right with this, right? That natives and imports from all the other Mediterranean regions, it's fine for them to coexist. As far as I'm concerned, yes. You will find people who are, they'll die over their sword or whatever, however you want to think about it, who are just (laughs) absolutely fanatic about it has to be native plants. Yeah. But the problem with it has to be native plants is our native plants are, it's really hard to create a beautiful garden. What people accept as a beautiful garden yeah. using only native plants because our plants are not in general colorful. They don't have big leaves. They turn brown in summer. You know, summer is our harshest season. So plants go dormant in summer. There's a lot of summer dormant natives. And the others, well, they just don't flower in summer. And that's when everybody wants to be outside. So people want to enjoy their space. They want to have color with a blah, blah, blah. It's hard to do that with natives. And the other thing is a lot of those people don't realize what is native. Mm-hmm. Okay. 700 miles long. California is 700 miles long. A redwood is native to California. But redwoods that have been planted in my region, they are all dying because they have to be watered. They're, they require much more moisture than we can provide. So is a, is a tree from Sonoma that's native to Sonoma, is it appropriate to use in a Southern California garden? You know, I have to fly to get to Sonoma or it takes me two days to drive there. You know, there's, there's this concept of the California floristic province, which really is, is the way that we define what's native to California. Again, if it's native to 300 miles from here, is it native to here? So a lot of those people are just going by some description somewhere that says it's native to California and therefore they're going to say it's appropriate for my garden. Well, it's not necessarily. It's from out of your region. You know, it's like how native is native. There's a wonderful resource. There's two of them, CalFlora and CalScape. CalFlora is a website that lists native plants and it's it shows you where it's native to. You can look up all kinds of plants by habitat, by county, by region. You can put in your zip code and figure out what is native to your space. It's a little more on the science end of things. And somebody developed a, it's now part of the California Native Plant Society under their umbrella, but this website called CalScape. CalScape is 
to help people use native plants in their landscape. So again, if you put in your zip code or your address, it will spit out a list of plants native to your site, right? They won't all be available in the nursery, but it shows you what is native to your site. So if you really want a native garden, a true native garden, you need to look at that and that would be your plant palette. But very few people do that. I think that the differences between the West Coast and the East Coast and us being so wet and things just take over, and I'm a proponent of equality, and I like to have not only native, but non-native, as long as they behave themselves. And if our weather's just more than good, sometimes they get out of hand if they're heavy seeders. So you have to watch out for that. And I certainly understand that. And I certainly don't want a plant that's going to be too aggressive in my garden. But at the same time, I want diversity and I want to make sure that I have things for pollinators. I want to make sure that there's something there color-wise and just for habitat that might be good for birds or small animals. Again, being science-based, one of the things that I've been following recently is there's research that's beginning to come out that evaluates non-native plants for their habitat value in terms of Mm. pollinators, servicing pollinators. I think this is really, really important because when I go to design a landscape, I am selecting plants based on a number of different criteria. I always want to make sure that there are plants for pollinators, that there's no quantification or or of, of, you know, which ones are better for pollinators than others. If I had a reference, like I have references for how much water plants take, but I don't have references for that. To add on another layer of information to tell me which are better pollinator plants, that will help guide me in my selection for when I'm designing gardens to include more of those plants. Doesn't mean I leave anything out. It just makes sure that I'm looking at the big picture and I'm providing a habitat for everything I want to make sure that I can support in the garden. That makes perfect sense. I've noticed that you've traveled a fair bit internationally, and it must really inform your knowledge base, not only for what you bring back to San Diego, but just kind of that very important worldwide perspective. Yep. Are, are there some things you could share with our listeners in terms of you know, what that looks like, plant selection? We've already kind of made the distinction here in the United States between East Coast, West Coast, and also that 700-mile coastline of California. But what has world travel taught you about plant selection? And again, I, I, I keep tying things back to you know where this planet is going and, and the big decisions and, and lifestyle changes that we all have to make, and obviously in the garden, along with virtually every other aspect of our life. You know, it's interesting. When I started traveling to sea gardens, well, the way I know you is through our, our professional organization, GardenCom. And that started me visiting gardens outside of California. I mean, even though I went to school in North Carolina and I gardened in North Carolina, I was a kid. <laughs> you know, let's just face it, I was a kid. Came back to California. And when I started having the opportunity to visit gardens around the country, I began to realize how different it is here where I garden. And I started seeing you know, gardens where there's a lot more rainfall and where the diversity is completely different. And I remember being, I don't know, outside of Chicago maybe, and seeing hydrangeas that were 20 feet tall and thinking, oh, 
that's what they're supposed to look like. Why do we bother trying to grow hydrangeas when we'll never be able to achieve this? You know, if they get to four feet tall here, we're doing great. And then we cut them back and they're gone. And and just understanding, seeing the contrast between what grows well here and what grows well in other regions. And then in the international tours that I lead, I do national tours and international tours, primarily international. And I lead a tour once or twice a year. We've gone many, many places. We've been to England and France, and we've been to Spain, and we've been to Costa Rica, and we've been to South Africa, and we've been all over the place. We've been to the Netherlands a couple of times. We've been to Eva's region of the country. So what's interesting to me is to see how different things are when you're in Northern or when you're in the Mediterranean region. I've made a real effort to visit. I want to be able to go see all those Mediterranean region climates, the landscapes in those climates. So, so far, we've, like I said, we've done the coast of France, we've done Spain, we've done South Africa, I'm probably forgetting a couple. But what really strikes me is when I'm in those areas and I just look out at, you know, the native areas that surround the communities or where we're out in habitat, how similar it looks to home. I mean, when you get up close and you look at the plants themselves, they're not the same plants. But the view, the feeling, you know, if you didn't know plants at all, you would think they were identical. And that really informs my teaching and my landscape design and my interest in finding new plants to use. It's fascinating because there's such a strong contrast between these regions and the rest of the world. It's, it's really fascinating. You know, when you think about how people migrated or emigrated to the places that they are, a lot of times they would pick a place or hear of a place that's very similar to where they where they came from. I don't know where my grandparents came from. They came from a mountain region and many of the relatives wound up going into the Pocono region or, you know, an area that was very much like what they had back home because things looked similar. Maybe not the plants, but the the actual visual landscape had some kind of connection to that area. And I think that's really a tribute to how we like certain things because of who we are and where we're from. Well, I think there's that comfort. I mean, Southern California is home to many, many South Africans, you know, Anglo-South Africans. But then again, what's really fun for me is to be like in the Netherlands. And to be out walking a trail and see a plant. And sometimes it's a plant I've never seen before. And I look at it and I know exactly what it is, which is like, how do you do that? How do you do that? And I just think it's amazing. It's something I've heard of, I've read descriptions of, and suddenly there it is like, I know what that is. I can't grow it, but I love seeing it here. And I love seeing that contrast and just seeing how people use plants or seeing something that I don't know what it is, but what does it remind me of? This is where that close observation comes back. What does this look like? What's the leaf shape? What do the flowers look like? Oh, that must be a salvia because it's got square stems and I recognize the shape of the flower. And, it, you know, I think the leaves are, are opposite. I can't remember now that I said that, but just looking at a plant and, and it, you kind of go through the mental checklist of what could this possibly be? A, B, where the leaves look like, where the flowers look like, where the stems look like, what is the, where is it growing, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's a puzzle. What is this? And then looking it up and figuring out what it is. It's really fun. I was in Kenya 
not leading a tour, but visiting Kenya this past summer. And I got to go around for a couple of days with a woman who's an ethnobotanist who's written the wildflower book for Kenya and Tanzania. And it wasn't their, you know, big bloom season. But so we didn't see everything, but we saw lots of things. And what was so cool was when we, when she stopped to show me a plant that was in flower, it wasn't a flower. And it was either a plant that I knew a cousin of, or it was a plant that I grow in my garden. In fact, there was one plant that she stopped and showed me and she said, we used to have lots of these, but we don't have them very, very many of these very more anymore. And I said, oh my God, my garden is full of those. Do you want seeds? So there were plants native there that I grow that like, like reseeds all over my garden. I'm going to send her seeds. That's so ironic. But we had a good laugh over it. People love animals. I totally understand why people love animals. But plants are so much more fascinating to me. Well, because there's that many more of them, I think. Maybe that's... So many more. So it, it, takes, right, it takes so much more skill to understand them and how they work. Or maybe I shouldn't say more skill, but it takes a lot of skill. You know, I could tell looking at a plant, I could be anywhere and I'll say, you know, this really looks like this belongs in the oak family. And, right. as, and as long as I think I know that it belongs into that family, I feel comfortable with that. But where, where, where I feel most comfortable is with the plants, you know. I, I totally agree with you. Where I am in my career now, which is probably similar to where you guys are, is I'm now looking at the next generations. I'm at the point now where I'm looking at the generations coming, coming up behind me. I know, Eva, you did this a lot. And I feel like I've been so fortunate to be the beneficiary of knowledge from experts in so many different areas, thanks to my career as a journalist, right? People share with me and I ask questions. I'm a big question asker. So I have gained so much knowledge from all these years of gathering information to write articles, to do the television show, all that kind of stuff. I'm now focused on passing that on. Because if I don't pass it on, it's a dead end and what a waste. It's my obligation to pass it on. So part of the way that I, I, use, I do that is I started a Facebook group back in 2014 called San Diego Gardener. I started it because, and this was, you know, young Facebook days. I started it because, you know, I get questions all the time. And I always feel like if one person asks me a question, there's 10 or 20 or 100 or 1,000 people with the same question. They just don't want to ask or they don't have the opportunity to ask. So let's make it easy on them. So I started this group thinking, okay, this is a place where people can come and ask questions. And instead of my, you know, just answering at one time, I can answer at one time and 50 people will see it. Maybe 100 people will see it. If I'm really lucky, I'll get that many people. So here we are, however many years later, we're coming up on 17,000 members. Just my county, right? There's only what somebody, when somebody said to me recently, you realize that's like 1% of metropolitan San Diego, something like that. So 17, almost 17,000 people have joined this Facebook group and it's incredibly active 24 seven. When we were shooting a growing passion, I would often have to get up at like four in the morning to be on location for sunrise. And I'd go to my computer to print out the latest version of that day's itinerary and script and all that. And of course, I'd check the Facebook group. And there's conversation that's been happening all night long. It's like, do people sleep? I don't know. But it's incredibly active. And what I find is now 
I'm raising new gardeners who are coming to the group and joining. But there's now eight of us that manage this group. And there's a whole cadre of experts in the group, and they're all designated. So we're now literally training the next generation. I had a coffee yesterday with a young man who is just started his landscape design and contracting business. And he comes from the culinary world. He doesn't have any um, formal training. And he was going on and on about how much he's learned from the conversations that happen in our Facebook group. And these are people who are coming to this group for this knowledge. That's amazing. I've been doing webinars. I've started doing uh, webinars on different topics. Like the latest webinar I did, uh, I'm still doing is drought proofing your garden, right? Because we have no water in Southern California, right? So Zoom has now allowed me to start offering talks myself instead of waiting for some garden club or some community organization to invite me to give a talk. I now can offer talks on topics that are timely that I want to talk about because I know what people are asking about. I know what's of interest to them. And I can give that talk and I can make it available to people who are not committed to an organization, not part of a club, that are just in in the community who want to know. Our local water, big water wholesaler, after I did the first webinar, they came to me and said, we'd like to hire you to give that webinar. We'll co-brand it. And we want you to give it and offer it for free. And, you know, we have a contract and all that. I still retain the rights to the content, but I'm doing six of these for the lo- on, on behalf of the local water agency or uh, wholesaler. So the first webinar was two nights ago under the co-branding. And my Zoom webinar maxes out at 500 people. We had like 430 people sign up just, you know, who saw it promoted somewhere. And I've got another five of these to go in the next couple of months. And it's just a great way to reach people with information that they want that's timely right now. It's just ironic. It's like I did this kind of, you know, meandering around thing and everything converged into being a garden communicator. Not the highest paid profession in the world, but really an effective one. And I treasure the opportunities I've had doing this work. So let me ask you this. What is your favorite tree? (laughs) What day is it? Oh, my God. I I can't tell you I have one favorite. It's like, what's your favorite child? We have to ask this question. So here's the thing. Or or a group of trees. Is there a group of trees you love? I'm going to give you a couple of options. Go ahead. Well, oaks, you know, obviously, oaks are majestic and they're beautiful and there are oaks that are iconic of California. There are oaks that are iconic of other regions too. The cork oak is, you know, from the Mediterranean region and it's one of the coolest trees in the world. You can take off its bark and it'll grow new bark mm-hmm. and you can use that bark. So oaks oaks are really special trees, but at the same time, acacias. Now there are some acacias that become weeds in our area. So a lot of people are afraid of acacias, but there are some fantastic acacias. There's an, and their their shapes and their architecture and their structure and their leaf form they're just so diverse. One of my favorites is an acacia called the pearl acacia. Acacia, this is a mouthful. Acacia podalarifolia. I may have missaid that, but based on how it's spelled, that's how you say it. Which has rounded leaves. They're about the size of a penny, a dime, a penny, somewhere in that range, and they are they look silver. They're like a flocked blue gray 
and they feel really soft when you touch them. And once a year, the tree erupts in these bright yellow, almost chartreuse flowers. So you've got that soft gray contrasted with that incredible yellow. They're not a big tree. They stay fairly small, maybe 20 feet or 20 feet, not quite that tall. But they are spectacular in bloom. They're like, hit your brakes back up and look at that again. There are trees like the African tulip tree, which is just finishing its bloom right now. Not the most water-wise tree, but fantastic. It has big flowers, like the size of a hand, a small hand, that are most often kind of a fiery orange, but there's also a golden yellow version. And again, one of those trees that when it's in bloom, hit the brakes back up, take out your phone, and start taking pictures. I love brachychitans. They're so bizarre. Brachychitin rupestris is, is the common name is bottle tree. And it's shaped like a bottle, like a long, narrow neck with a big squat bottom. And they look like an ancient forest. When you walk into a a planting where there's many of them, you expect elves to come running out from behind. Eucalyptus, even though they're vilified, there's some fantastic eucalyptus trees. There's a eucalyptus called Eucalyptus deglupta, which is the rainbow bark eucalyptus. It's from the Philippines. It's one of the only eucalyptus that's not from Australia. A little thirstier. But the bark on this tree, it's it's pink and green and blue and brown. It's a shreddy bark. So as the layers come off, it reveals all different colors. Mm. And it is fantastic. It's one of those trees, and I was talking about walking up to a plant that you've never seen before and you know just what it is. The first time I ever saw one of those, I was just, just spellbound. I knew just what it was. I don't even know where I'd heard about it. But I've seen them here, and they're beautiful. I've seen them in Costa Rica where they are used, um, they're planted in coffee plantations because coffee trees are shade, need shade. Oh, right, 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 right. So coffee trees are kind of short. They're almost more shrubs than they are trees. And they've got those deep, glossy green leaves. And then they plant those rainbow eucalyptus in and amongst the, the they probably plant the eucalyptus first and then the coffee plants, just thinking about it. But you've got that deep green background. And then you've got these tall punctuation marks that are pink and bright green and 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 blue and it is fantastic there's a million trees that i absolutely love and of course don't forget fruit trees well thank you i mean you did a very noble job and i guess the fair question we should have asked you is what's your top favorite 100 trees but yeah what you gave us yeah. Is, is, yeah. Is, is perfect yeah. and you're right it's, it's very hard to pick your favorite child I know that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it depends on the situation. Yeah. And it depends on the year. And it depends on what I've been seeing in the nurseries and what I've been seeing in gardens. And I've been designing gardens for almost 20 years now. And I was thinking the other day that it would be fun to go back to the earliest ones I designed and to see how those gardens look and how those plants survived and which of those plants I'm still using in landscapes, right? And which I've, what I wasn't using then and what I'm using now. I should do that. Actually, I think about some of the ones that we did and the trees that we used to plant, we can't plant anymore because they're disappearing. I'm thinking yeah. of the Eastern hemlock. That's or the Canada hemlock. That's, you can't grow it here anymore. Why is that? 
not only because of the heat, but woolly adelgid, it, it just annihilates it. But the heat is is another thing. And it was at one time, the one tree, the reason why it became the state tree of Pennsylvania was because it was found in every county in the state of Pennsylvania. And it's not anymore. Oh, interesting. Interesting. So what we're doing now, we're looking to Baja and the plants growing in Baja as being the ones that we will be growing into the future. Right. Right. So we're looking at North Carolina, Virginia. Wow. We're talking a lot further south than us and bringing them up. And we've been doing it for quite a while without us really knowing that we were preparing for this um, climate change. We were, you know, people... Assisted migration. Uh, yeah, with the assisted, assisted migration, migration. We, we wanted to bring up the Southern Magnolia, but, you know, then people would go and scout it and then plant it in the Arboretum to see how well it did. And then once it did well, okay, everybody wants to have one in their yard because of the big flowers and the deep evergreen foliage. You know, those are the kind of things that kind of work their way up just because of what we would classify as what a plant envy that we wanted to have it in our own community. Zone envy, yeah. Or zone envy, yeah. And that's that's what happens. and. So yeah. now that we're hot, we're getting those coming into our area or have them in our area. That's so interesting. So actually, magnolias are only the, the evergreen magnolias grown here. The other magnolias basically don't do much. So that's magnolia grandiflora, right? Yeah. right? But they need more water. And people will tell me that they're drought tolerant. And I look at them and they planted them in a lawn, which is the we do not grow trees in lawns. We cannot grow trees in lawns here. And I just think, uh, no you're wrong. You're watering it. You're not watering it well, but you're watering it regularly. And that's why you're able to grow it. Are you still allowed to have lawns in San Diego? So this is this is a really interesting question. Uh, the whole state's under water restrictions. All of Southern California is under pretty significant water restrictions. San Diego is not as restricted as the rest of Southern California because our water agency, our local wholesale water agency, has actually diversified our water resources so we get more water from the Colorado River. Okay, that said, the Colorado River is also very limited. And we also have set up exchanges with the farmers. So there's a whole group of farmers in the Imperial Valley, which is the next county over, that have agreed that under certain conditions, they will stop farming and give us their water. They get paid for it, of course. So, and also in San Diego, we've been working harder for longer to reduce water use. Okay, all that said, as a state, starting last January, we are not supposed to be watering lawns in commercial and industrial, anything that's non-residential, you're not supposed to be watering the lawn. It's not being policed though, so they're still doing it. But anything that's not residential or a park, those lawns are not supposed to be watered at all. The lawns can be watered Basically, you can water, but there's restrictions on how long and how often you can water. And basically, if your lawn survives on that, sure. And if it doesn't, that's your problem. So they're not telling you you can or can't have lawn. What they're saying is, this is how long and how often you can water. You figure it out. But in that drought-proof webinar that I give, a third of it is how to get rid of your lawn and what, how to go about replacing it what to do next. I have several episodes of A Growing Passion. One's called Bye Bye Grass, and that is literally a survey of methodologies for getting rid of lawn. And then there's several we did on water-wise planting, but there's one called called After the Lawn is Gone, and it's specifically on what to plant in its place. And I'm not talking lawns. You know, people are looking for two things, a negative green space, 
that's easy. You know, you can plant all kinds of low-growing green stuff for a negative green space, but they're looking for a play surface. That's hard. That's mm. really hard. You right. know, they'll say to me, I'm going to get rid of my lawn and I want to, re- I want to plant low-water grass in its place. Yeah, and I want to be six feet tall, but so what? <laughs> it ain't going to happen. There are grasses that are lower water, native grasses that are lower water. There are sedges that take less water, but none of them are, in my opinion, good play surfaces. You wanted your kids to play, go to the park. Lawns are like swimming pools. Yes, you can have one in your backyard, but should you? What we really need to have are community swimming pools and community lawns in parks. Lawns here require as much water as a swimming pool. Yeah, because we don't have rainfall, we don't have humid air, right? So there's no humidity in the air. The it you know it's evaporating constantly. Yeah. Unless you cover your pool, and not everybody does. Hmm. Well, it's been really a a delight to have you on the podcast, Nan. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromeda Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank you.